welcome to the Freudcast. In 2001, a young man named Josh Ponty responded to a newspaper ad asking for a conservationist to live in Gabon with 16 gorillas and a handful of scientists. The job was to help the government create a network of national parks to protect a large chunk of the country. The West African nation is home to some of the world's most precious biodiversity, but perhaps more crucially, Gabon is also home to the lungs of Africa, the planet's most important forest ecosystem after the Amazon. As one of the world's few highly forested, low deforestation nations, this natural green superpower plays a central role in the global fight against climate change. Now, 20 years on, Josh is creative director of the African Conservation Development Group, and he sat down with Freud's Zulum Elamogo to discuss his journey, Gabon's status as a global carbon superpower, and the power of storytelling in conservation. And what brought you to Gabon? Well, it's a very long story, but the short version is I saw an advert in a newspaper looking for a man to go and live with 16 gorillas. A gorilla project needed an administrator. And I tore out this ad and put it by my computer for some time, but it just never went away. So I made that call. And for reasons unbeknownst to me, I got the job. I jumped on a plane. That plane turned into a three-hour car journey that was followed by a four-hour boat journey. So seven hours from the nearest human being, I found myself living with 16 gorillas in the southeast corner of Gabon in 2001. Wow. And your official title is Creative Director for the African Conservation Development Group. That's right. It's a great title. What, is, what does that entail? Well, it, it, for me, it's, a, it's, it's really interesting that a, a very large scale development company has a creative director at all. And I am grateful for the opportunity to play that role. Um, uh, it involves, as is often the case with creative directors, finding and building a narrative to explain what we do. What we do is relatively complex, and I am given great freedom to find ways to explain what we do and how we do it. And what are your chosen media for communicating this message that you devise? I think it, it all depends on the audience, and the audience, audience, quite frankly, is hugely varied from the local communities who live near where our, our operations are in, in Gabon, all the way through to the international community, to a community like we find here at COP, multinational, multidisciplined, with multi-motivations. Uh, and my job is to find a way each time to, to resonate with those different audiences. And they're very, very different. And when did you become creative director? I've done this job for about three years. And tell me about some of the campaigns that you've devised. Well, so maybe it's worth backing up a bit and describing what it is we do. So Gabon is a very unusual country in so much as it's 250,000 square kilometers. To put that in context, it's about the size of France, for example. And it has a population of somewhere just north of 2 million people. Mm. So you've got a country the size of France with 2 million people in it, and about two-thirds of those people live across two principal cities, two and a half principal cities, we should say. So that puts Gabon, particularly from a rural point of view, in the bottom 20 least habited places on the, world, uh, on the planet. On top of which, Gabon is the second most forested country on earth. So as all the countries come together here at COP to try and discuss and set and 
debate their ambitions for net zero, Gabon kind of stands alone in that discussion, that it emits every year as a country in its industries 40 million tonnes of carbon. It sequesters as the, as the, the, the um, protector of its own forest landscape, it sequesters 140 million tonnes of carbon a year. So Gabon isn't going for net zero, it has no reason to go for net zero because it's already got 100 million tonnes of carbon sequestered from the atmosphere in the bank every year. And that sets it apart from other countries. Um, what does our business do in a place like Gabon? It's recognising that in an African context, and particularly a country like Gabon that has relied on fossil fuels, relied on revenue from its oil that was found at the end of the 60s and really uh, exploited heavily through the 70s and 80s. Um, as reliance on fossil fuels goes down, as the oil price reduces, what is Gabon meant to do to earn a living? And in an African context, how uh, is a country like that expected to raise the prosperity and the well-being of its citizens without destructive exploitation of its forest landscape. And our meticulously planned approach to large-scale landscape use ties all of these parts together. So you've got the commercial aspect. If people are investing in these kind of landscapes, how are they expected to get a return? Whilst looking very carefully at the environmental impact and the socioeconomic impact. And once you put those three things together of people environment and profit, we are proposing that, that you can have all of them. And we've been led to believe that that's not possible to have all of them, that if you have commercial activity, it almost inevitably leads to environmental destruction. And we don't believe that to be the case. We think you can have the triple win, win commercially, win socioeconomically, and, and win environmentally. And how are you going to go, go about uh, achieving this triple win? Well, so it, it starts with, with, with um, having secure rights over an area of land. It then requires very careful measurement and meticulous research to understand that landscape. Who's there? I mean, who's there from a human point of view? Who's there from a biodiversity point of view? What's there from a landscape point of view, particularly in our case, trees and and their ability both to sequester and hold carbon in their fibre. And once you've understood that landscape, and our landscape is a bit strange, even though Gabon is the second most forested country on earth after Suriname, there is this one finger of savannah that comes up from Angola, from the south across the Congo border. And that presents a great opportunity for agricultural use. Gabon has a long reputation of not growing enough food for its people and certainly not an excess that can be exported and sold. So there is an agricultural component to our business. There is a sustainable forestry component to our business. There is an ecotourism component. And there's a kind of municipal infrastructure and urban development component in the southernmost town in Gabon. It's situated between a national park over the Congolese border, Konkwati, and two Gabonese parks, Mayumba, which is a marine park that's uh, part of uh, Gabon has the largest network of marine protected areas on the African continent. And in 2002, I was part of the team of people who created a network of 13 national parks protecting 11% of terrestrial Gabon. So Gabon's leadership in environmental stewardship is uh, pretty much unrivaled. Mm -hmm. And then it's, it's legal uh, structures and things that's put in place, particularly in the logging industry, the logging code, the sustainable development law, the current climate law that's just been passed onto the books. 
All of that gives us a framework to operate in a very, very different way. So the landscape lends itself to a whole load of different activities that we've optimized through 10 years of research. And uh, the country and its regulation uh, allows us to operate in, 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 and measure and define the sustainability context in which we work. Um, the movement of the carbon markets and financial instruments also affords us choices in how we finance these kind of a project. Um, and Forest Lab that I mentioned at the beginning is our kind of innovation hub. And if we're at the very front edge of some of this calculation as to what sustainable development is and means, we've partnered with the London School of Economics, Grantham Institute, uh, and the University of Stirling. Stirling have 40 years of ecological research in Gabon, uh, one of the longest standing tropical equatorial data sets. Um, and LSE, obviously, at the forefront of environmental economics and finance. And when you put those together with a private sector operator like ourselves, you end up with a pretty exciting mix as we try and optimize the land use uh, from an economic point of view, an environmental point of view, and from a socioeconomic point of view. Did that answer your question? Or is that uh, it was extremely comprehensive. No, <laughs> I enjoyed that. Um, so I want to understand a bit more about the man uh, with the vision yourself. Um, you did not go to university, you told me earlier. You went straight to work. What was the nature of that work and what sparked the curiosity that led you to view and add advertising the opportunity to live with it, 16 gorillas uh, and make you say, hey, that's a bit of me? <laughs> well, it's weird. I certainly don't take the, all the credit of the man with the vision of... Uh, for the African Conservation Development Group and what we're, what we're doing at the Grand Mayumba project, that, that belongs to a group of people led by a man called Alan Bernstein, who has worked tirelessly for 30 years in this space. I come at it from this conservation side, from this Gabonese story. Um, me not going to college, I'm old enough for that to be inconsequential. It was too far back in my past. And my, I've, I had a really successful career in the UK. Up to a certain point, I ended up uh, owning a part of a chain of nightclubs. This is not a normal start for a conservationist, but that's the way my, <laughs> my track works. Well, I'm sure there's some similarities. Well, yeah, but nightclubs in... Some right, parallels. And living with gorillas, maybe they have <laughs> similarities. That's long behind me. Anyway, the, the critical part of my life, as I say, was when I saw this ad in the paper and I turned left and I ended up on the equator. The story of Gabon's environmental um, history is a remarkable one. Uh, it involved a man called... Um, Lee White, who is currently the Minister of the Environment, uh, but at the time was a researcher uh, studying the interconnected nature of, of forest ecosystems, and a, a maverick American explorer called Mike Fay, who walked for 460 days from northwest Congo to the Gabonese coast in 2019-2020. And, and, and that walk, which became known as the Mega Transect, Mike, and uh, 20 or so guys from a very remote pygmy community right in the center of Gabon, did this incredible walk, an act of astonishing um, endurance. And that walk and the photographs that were made of these clearings where the elephants lived or the elephants on the beach, the famous surfing hippos, the humpback whales, the leatherback turtles, the more than half of all forest elephants who exist on earth today live in those Gabonese forests. And Mike's walk and the photographs that were made from it triggered a domino topple that resulted in us creating these national parks in 2002. And 
that was an opportunity that couldn't be missed, couldn't be passed up. In one way, it was like a lottery win. We as conservationists suddenly had this, this um, protected area network that had been created by the Gabonese government, uh, and we had to make that work. Uh, and so that's been 20 years of my life, and despite endlessly trying to get away from Gabon, it's got a hook in me way too deep. The place is extraordinary in every way, both from a biodiversity point of view and from a cultural point of view. It's a very complex uh, cultural patchwork uh, across this relatively small population, very, very diverse um, uh, ethnic groups who live together as the Gabonese Republic, uh, but nonetheless still exist with these nuances of local traditional practice in both structure and music and culture and so on. So it's a place that grabbed me hard. And um, I started recording music that actually was going around to make a film to try and raise awareness for the protected areas and ended up making a film about Gabonese music, um, <laughs> which also um, kind of dug the country deeper into me. So it has been 20 years of my life. And, and what I recognized actually in a very practical sense was that the philanthropic model that protected areas often run with, that's to say gifted money, has huge shortcomings. And those shortcomings come in this liquidity cycle. It's when you've got money and you can employ people and you can buy cars and you can set up infrastructure and build out projects in the parks, that's all well and good. And when the money dries up, which it does inevitably in cycles, then people who you were employing, suddenly you have to lay off for a bit or cars stay in the shop. And that mm -hmm. level of dysfunction, particularly in a place like Gabon, where you really are taking elephant hunters and turning them into eco-guides and eco-guards, if, uh, if their job becomes at risk for, for economic reasons, they inevitably go back to what they know. And so for me to bolt on this private sector endeavor, to bolt on a way of generating our own resources, but with a conservation mentality. And I, I, I forgot to say earlier that across the landscape that we have management rights over, which is really significant, 7,300 square kilometers, a third of that is set aside completely for conservation. And, and so this idea of a private sector enterprise that can stand alone uh, from a capital point of view, but still has those profound conservation um, uh, profound conservation at, at the heart of its philosophy, that for me seemed like a very engaging answer. So I've uh, pushed my shoulder and keep my shoulder firmly to the wheel in trying to realise what I think is a great project. Incredible stuff. I'm just learning so much. Uh, what brings you to COP26 here in Glasgow? Well, COP26, for me, obviously, the COP process has been something that I, like many, have observed from a distance with, with confusion and with criticism at times, is something happening or how's, what's going on? And in the last few years, as, as I've worked hard on a, on a, a, um, a multidisciplined um, optimized land use program that takes in much of what is hotly debated at COP, it's really interesting for me to come here to really understand the complexity of getting consensus of more than 120 countries with their respective needs uh, and the complexity of building these mechanisms that are allowing this transition towards a different way of doing everything, a different way of extracting our natural resources, a different way of dealing with our supply chains, a different way of uh, 
the relationships between the developed world and the developing world. And for me, it just seemed very important not to be a bystander at this particular COP and to roll up my sleeves and get stuck in with this careful model that we have uh, and push this agenda. And Gabon, as, as I explained before, as a net sequestering nation, it's one of very, very few. It falls between a lot of the structures that exist in the COP network. And by that, I mean Gabon is a high forest, low deforestation country. It's a place with lots of forest, with a good record of not cutting it down. And traditionally, some of the mechanisms and incentive systems have been built around these high forest, high deforestation countries. And places like Gabon, who are responsible for managing these global commons, these mechanisms, these factories of natural capital, as we like to talk about them, these things that are doing a service for us that we've always assumed are A, infinite, and B, free. And now it's clear that they're neither infinite nor free in the service they provide. So part of me still has that old Gabon hat on of really pushing some of the arguments that the Gabonese government are proposing at COP uh, for being rewarded for the stewardship of its forest landscape. And then, of course, as um, a, a private sector participant, it's, it's about both listening to and engaging with some of the processes and, and contributing, uh, at least in part, as a product of our meticulous analysis of this landscape and new systems of both finance and operation in an African context that improve the livelihoods of people on the ground and, uh, and keep the economic wheels turning. What would be a good outcome for yourselves at the conservation group from this conference? What does a win look like? I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I, I live in a family of three. One of us is five years old and we can barely decide, we can barely agree what to do on a Sunday. How you get 120 participant countries to agree. What's really interesting for me, I think, is that actually the UN process is about consensus of ambition. But the execution of that model is not the responsibility of the UN. The UN are not in a position to execute the plan. What this does is it serves as a dysfunctional but best option that we've got um, environment for trying to agree on the key points. And once those key points have been agreed, the delegation pushes back to nation states to create the laws and regulations to then allow both private operators and the population to change their behavior in such a way that we can move towards mitigating uh, the climate crisis. And so this COP, more than ever before, feels like, of course, it's going to carry on going. The COPs will carry on going and hopefully the framework will continue to sharpen. But really, uh, we find ourselves at a point that if the action doesn't start, we don't translate that ambition into realistic models and methodologies for changing the way that we do everything, we will inevitably fail. And that comes at a horrendous cost, a horrendous social cost, particularly for the developing world, and a horrendous economic cost that we're beginning to see. And so that's why this COP feels to me to be critical, vital in many ways, that we've got to pull away from this idea of scratching our heads, thinking we really must do something, and convert that into the doing part the doing on the ground. And actually that separates back out of this club of global nations mm. and into the hands of everyone. That's a great answer. <laughs> but when it comes to the ACDG, your organization, what would a win look like? 
So a win, a win for ACDG looks like fur, furthering the debate about recognizing nature's value. What role do these forests play? We're getting better at measuring them. We're be- getting better at understanding them. We're getting uh, better at applying um, value uh, and, and, and measurement on these three critical parts of the equation. One is, um, is drawing down CO2 from the atmosphere. Uh, two is uh, reducing the emissions that we make in doing the things we do and avoiding emissions that would have otherwise made had we carried on as usual. And it's this marriage of these three things. We've got to become, if we're going to stand a chance of uh, staying under 1.5 or even 2 degrees, uh, those three things have to work in, in unison. So pushing our methodology, which is an avoided emissions methodology from an ACDG point of view, and pushing Gabon's agenda of a reducing atmospheric CO2 through the sequest- natural sequestration of its forests, any advancement, any evolution in either of those spaces is, is progress for us. And um, in few words, what do you love most about Gabon? Gabon's a very hard place to describe in just a few words. But when Mike Fay, the guy who did this 460-day walk, when was this walk? So it was in uh, 2000, basically. But what he did, he was living in Congo during the war and he was restocking. Sorry, there's not in a few words, but you'll have to <laughs> indulge me in the story. <laughs> but Mike was living in a remote field site and he was restocking in Libreville, which is the capital of Gabon, because Brazzaville was chaotic and uh, war, there was a war going on. So he would fly over this country of Gabon and very quickly he realized its astonishing emptiness as a place. But he did something incredible. And what he did was draw a 15-kilometer buffer down every road, every village he could find using sat imagery and other things, every logging concession, everywhere where humans were. He pushed a buffer of 15 kilometers in all directions. And in so doing, on this map, he ended up with these six places that were beyond human contact. So by that, I mean a hunter or a forester or anyone who's kind of wandering around, they can only be bothered to walk 15 kilometers in a day. No one's going much further. So if you go beyond that 15 kilometer buffer, you're out in a wild world, a world where humans haven't placed their thumb. And there aren't so many of those left. And Gabon is an intensely precious one. And so Mike set his path, this walk, to visit these six places that were beyond the human touch. And if, if, if you do that, and Gabon represents this, that wildness to me, both from a biodiversity point of view and from a cultural point of view, it's, it's, there's a wildness to it. The, the, the wealth of having touched that, the, the richness that I get, the nourishment that I've got from having touched the wild world is the thing that drives me that that needs to exist. I want to be able to see an elephant where an elephant's meant to be. And indeed, that landscape has been like that. There is, the fossils were found in uh, 2012 when they were building a stadium for a football game for the African Cup of Nations that pushed the multicellular life record from 600 million years to 2.1 billion years. That's pushed it from where Darwin, if you kind of reverse engineer Darwinism, you get a 600 million year complex life landscape. And in Gabon, there are 25 centimeter fossils that are 2.1 billion years old, the first time that oxygen appeared in our atmosphere. So that is our world. 
pre-human in a way. That's just like we've been here for the last second of this time scale. But if you go back 2.1 billion years on that equatorial belt, that despite massive swings, this endless rhythm of ice ages and hot periods, nothing to do with anthropogenic climate change that we see now, but these rhythms that, that the planet has gone through in the past, and the forests retract, and they retract along rivers, and they retract along, along um, mountain ridges, and so on. And it's those places that have harbored life. So England, and those times of glaciation, gets wiped clean and seeds have to bob across the channel or before the channel was there that seeds could move up and repopulate England. And I think I'm right in saying that England has about 30 species of trees that's endemic to this land. If you go to Gabon, there are 10,000 species of trees. And every, and it's still, a Salatus monkey was found in the late 80s as a monkey was nearly a metre high. There was, there was new to science. Botanists find things that are new to science every day. And that's not just the megafauna that we love, the humpback whales and the leatherback turtles and the forest elephants and the chimpanzees and the gorillas, these iconic animals that live pretty much only there. All the mandrels in the world live in Gabon, give or take. Uh, but the little stuff, the stuff that we haven't found yet, that it provides endless understanding, knowledge, medicine, uh, food, all these things. And Gabon is one of these places where all these things still exist. I liken it a bit like an Asterix village, that everything's been trashed and this is one place that remains intact and we need to nurture those places. The embers are not out. It's a, it's a beautiful place that we need to, to kindle so that that becomes a kind of the, the roaring fire that is life, that is the evolved process that's gone on, as I say, for 2.1 billion years. So why do I love Gabon in a few words? Impossible. But if you want, like, five minutes of ramble, that's my answer. Thanks to Josh and Zulam, and thanks to you for listening as well. You can keep up with the Freudcast and everything else Freud is doing on LinkedIn and Instagram. I'm Matt Barbet. Until next time, bye-bye.